<clears throat> the scripture reading for our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Right. All right. Well, good morning, good morning everyone. everyone. It's like an echo. <laughs> that thing has been plaguing us for weeks, but it's all good. Um, I'm Pastor Rich. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, at Risen. If you're new, if you're visiting us, I want to welcome you to our church. I'm excited that God has brought you uh, to our church. And today we're, we're going over a famous passage today, actually. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And, and throughout Christian tradition, today's text is known as the Transfiguration. Uh, because of the sort of transformation of Jesus' face and clothing, as, as, as Pris read, dazzling white, right? Uh, the Greek word for dazzling actually is lightning. I don't know why they translate it as lightning, but we're going to get into that, into that whole event, into that whole scene. Uh, but first, what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, our first point, I want to get into the disciples first, right? So we're going to take a look at three things today. We're going to take a look at first the disciples. Then we're going to take a look at the glory of God. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at this conversation that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are having, right? It's kind of strange, but those are the three things. So first, let's take a look at the disciples. I mean, this is sort of this epic moment, the transfiguration, right? Moses and Elijah uh, their spirits are resurrected. They are there with Jesus. Uh, Jesus' face is actually in, in Matthew's gospel, it's, it's described as uh, like the fire of the sun, right? So his face is glowing like fire. A cloud comes down. All of this is reminiscent about the allusions to God's glory in the Old Testament. But during this significant moment, what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping, <laughs> They're sleeping. In verse 32, it says that uh, Peter, we've got it up here on the slide. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they saw, or when they became fully awake, they saw 
Jesus' glory. Now, now, that is not an incidental descriptive uh, sentence there. You know, Luke is not just wasting papyrus, you know. Uh, everything he writes is very, very informative. And what Luke is telling us is that seeing God is like waking up from your sleep. Actually, sleep, if you read the scripture, sleep is the perfect illustration uh, that the biblical writers use to describe of what it means to not have a relationship with God. Now, I don't know about you, um, I don't really dream that much. I don't, I don't really have nightmares that often. But when I do, it's always in a military setting. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because I love military movies, so it's after I watch a military movie. It's always, my nightmare is always about war. I'm in this battle with bullets whizzing by. There's grenades going off. It's intense. I'm anxious. There's danger everywhere. I, you know, I'm sweating. And then all of a sudden, I wake up. And I'm no longer in danger, right? There's calm. I'm at peace. I realize I'm secure. And that's what a relationship with God is like. It's like waking up from what isn't real to what is real. In other words, uh, when you become a Christian, you know, um, one day you spiritually wake up and you realize that you've been sleepwalking. And the things that used to scare you don't scare you as much. The things that used to discourage you and cause you so much anxiety, they, they don't discourage you and cause you anxiety anymore. You wake up and you say, you know, you wake up and you say, I have the presence of God. And everything else, yes, you know, they matter, but they're secondary. All these other things that I've been anxious about that have been consuming my thoughts and my emotions, they do not possess the substance of the reality that I'm ultimately looking for. No, Jesus is real. He is the source of real wisdom and real love and real joy and real security. That's what it's like when you come to know God. And this is why the word glory actually keeps coming up in our passage. Um, the word glory, it doesn't just mean fame. It doesn't just mean uh, power. Literally, the word glory in the Bible means weight. Okay? So this word is used when people did business with each other. People would bring their eggs, their grain, and they would weigh it. And the heavier it weighed, the more valuable it was. So that, that's what we're talking about here. Glory means value. And many of us, we give unproportionate value to the things that should not carry that much value. We get angry about things that frankly shouldn't angry as it does. We get despondent and we despair about certain things that shouldn't cause us necessarily to be so tragically despondent and despairing. We give value to things that when we don't have them, they make us feel discontent when in reality they shouldn't make us feel ultimately discontent. And you see that? That's what's happening uh, when, when we're sleepwalking, when, when we're not in tune with God. We are giving circumstances more glory, more weight, more value than the wisdom and the reality of God. You are spiritually asleep. 
spiritually you're on the wrong page. You're playing out of tune. Have you ever, if you've ever played an instrument and you can hear someone who's out of tune, or if you're playing a sport and someone is playing, taking football principles and applying them to basketball principles, they're not on the same page, right? It means you're spiritually sleepwalking. And you see, in our text, the disciples, they're, they're asleep. They're supposed to be with Jesus. They're supposed to be praying with him. But then what happens? The glory of Christ wakes them up. So what is the reality of being a Christian? What, is it, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? It means that you're spiritually awake. And how does this happen? This happens only as we learn from our text. Don't take it from me. This happens only when you see God's glory. When you're not looking at the other things that are taking up your value, the things that you are weighing, it's when you're looking at God's glory and His value. The presence of Christ hits you. His glory overwhelms you. You know, when I first became a pastor, I was working out of approval. I was working um, out of, you know, self-glory. I was working out of insecurity. And it was, it was enslaving. It was, it was I, I would burn out week to week to week. And it wasn't until I was stressed out and I was preparing a sermon and my good friend was like, what are you stressed out about? I said, uh, about this sermon. And he says, why? And then I said, Without thinking, this is when you know you're sleeping because you say things without thinking. And I said, I'm worried that people aren't going to like it. And then he said, should you be, is that your goal to write sermons that people like? I'm like, and then, you know, I, I didn't think of what I said. I said, no. And then he's, <laughs> he's counseling me now. He's saying, well, why should you write sermons? And I said, to, to show people the love of God. And that was when I spiritually woke up as a pastor and I realized that I don't do what I do to make people like me or to say that I'm great. I do what I do because God has loved me and it's an overflowing of that love. Now, what I do doesn't change. You know, I put in the same hours. I do the same things. But why I do has changed. And I've got a different motivation. I have, I have a different spirit in me, you see. And so, it's because Christ woke me up. So there's clarity now for me and focus now. And so when I get feedback now, there's, there's, there's clarity. There's poise. There's, there's peace. And friends, I want to ask you today, do you have that peace? Do you have that clarity and focus? Do you know what is valuable in life? Do you know what is glorious? Or maybe it has happened to you. You've been a Christian for a while, but you've been sleepwalking for a while. And if you read the New Testament, you know that the disciples sleeping is a constant refrain. They're always falling asleep. <laughs> they're always sleeping when Jesus is praying, when they're supposed to be praying. They're sleeping on the boat, or actually that's Jesus sleeping on the boat. <laughs> they constantly need to be spiritually woken up. It's never just a passing phrase that the writer's right and in the same way friends you and i we need the presence of god you need to wake up and you need to see the glory of christ you need to say lord help me wake up help me see give me a spiritual tune-up because we can't do it ourselves 
let's take, let's take a look at how this happens. Let's take a look at the glory of God. You know, this passage, there are several allusions to God's glory in the Old Testament. Um, and, and, and like I mentioned in Matthew's account, um, he describes Jesus' face shining like the fire of the sun. Fire. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that's an allusion to God. The first time actually Moses saw God, it was in a burning bush. It was in a mist of a fire. You know, Exodus 3, Moses is shepherding his sheep on a mountain. And then in Exodus 3, we read, the Lord appears to Moses in a fire out of the midst of a bush. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Then God called Moses out of the bush. Moses, Moses, don't come near, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their masters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so you see here, the first time we see God kind of showing up in this fire is, is, is when Moses sees God's glory. It's so bright and it's so powerful and it's so supernatural and so dangerous. You never want to look at the sun directly with your eyes that Moses could even look into the glory of God. And later in Exodus 13, uh, the Pharaoh finally lets Moses and Israel go. It says that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And when the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, the people of Israel feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then God moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them to behind them coming between Egypt and Israel. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. See, Israel is, is trying to get out of Egypt, get away from their masters who have enslaved them. And how do they get out? How do they kind of wake up from the spiritual darkness, it's by the glory of God. By day in the sunlight, it looks like a cloud, right? You could see clouds during the day. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. And even when Pharaoh is on their heels, the cloud moved from the front to the back and held off the entire army of Pharaoh, the greatest army in the world at that time. So we see here God's glory guiding his people And then after God leads his people out of Egypt, God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, right? They need a law to live by before they're living under the law of Egypt. Now they need a a, a new law, a righteous law. And so God gives them the the Ten Commandments. And God appears to them when he gives them this law. And how does he appear? We'll see right here how he appears. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning 
and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. So here is, in our text, this glorious scene. You have the God of Israel, Yahweh, right? The God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush. The God who, who parted the Red Seas and defended the Israelites in a pillar of fire from their, their, their masters. The God who descended in a cloud and with lightning and thunder and gave them a law to live by to create a righteous and just community. You see this God in our text in Jesus. His face is glowing like the fire of the sun. His clothes are radiating like lightning. And down comes a cloud. It's the presence of God, and the disciples can't believe it. They're, they cannot believe what they're saying, seeing. So what is Luke saying here? Luke is just simply saying that, that God's glory in the Exodus, the the fire and the glory cloud that took out Pharaoh, the thunder and lightning on that mountain, that glory is in the person of Christ. And so for the first time, the disciples are witnessing this. You know, they've heard Jesus talk about and reference God. They've seen him do certain things. But for the first time now, they are seeing it fully with their own eyes, the supernatural glory of God in Christ. Right? It's one thing uh, to... Um, hear someone who did something amazing. It's another thing to actually see it with your own eyes, right? It's one thing to be, you know, oh, man, Steph Curry scored 50 points, and he was raining threes from half court. I go to a game, and I'm just, like, screaming. <laughs> like, oh, oh, you're giving high fives to strangers. Popcorn is flying everywhere. There's a difference. There's one thing to hear that your friend was in the delivery room and how crazy it was. There's another thing to be in that delivery room yourself, you see? And into this glorious event, what, what, what happens? What does Peter do? Peter steps forward and he says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now this is supposed to be humorous for us, all right? Luke inserts a comment of his own that Matthew and Mark do not in their own account. Luke says, Peter wanted to build three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, but he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Peter didn't know what he's talking about. You see, Jesus is wrapped in God's glory here. Moses hid. The Israelites were scared, but not Peter. Oh, not Peter. You know Peter. Peter always has something to say. <laughs> Peter is impulsive. A lot of the times, he speaks without thinking, right? He says, Lord, when Jesus is walking on, on the water, let me go out there. He goes out there, and then he gets all scared, and then he falls into the water, right? He tells Jesus, I'm never going to leave you, and Peter's the first one to leave him. And this really shows the grace of Christ because, you know, some of us are impulsive just like Peter. If you find yourself saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, then you are Peter's disciple. And to be fair, we've all done this. I, I've said things I regret, and I, and I know that it's going to be bad. I can see it as the words are coming out of my mouth. I'm like, man, this is, this is going to be bad. I should have thought. I should have just been silent. But what is wrong with making three tents? Well, there are two things that are wrong with this. First, Peter thinks Jesus is on the same level as Moses and Elijah. 
Right, Peter, you notice, what does Peter call Jesus in our text? Does he call him God? He does not call him God. He just saw the glory of God in Jesus. The, the, his face was burning with fire. His clothes was lightning white, but Jesus still does not understand that Jesus, uh, that Jesus is God. He says, Master. And that's a strong translation. In the Greek, it, it's, it's, not, it's not the word kurios, which means Lord. It's actually, it, it's translated to be boss. That's what it means. It means chief, Right? Boss, chief. He's calling Jesus boss. See, Peter has been with Jesus this entire time. He's seen Jesus perform miraculous healings and feed multitudes of people. He's been in the presence of God. He is in the glory of God. But he does not act like Jesus is God. He still does not understand the glory of Christ. So here's what Luke is doing. Luke is giving us a choice. Luke is saying either Jesus is who he says he is, he is God in the flesh, or he's not. But he's not in the middle. He's not a typical teacher or thinker like Moses or Elijah or like any other New York Times best-selling thinker or writer. Think about the things that Jesus said. Jesus said that you must worship him and submit all your thoughts and your desires and actions, your entire life to him. Jesus said to follow him, you must acknowledge him as judge, king, and God over your life. That's what Jesus said. So he's either God and who he says he is, or he's a lunatic. Or he's lying to us and he's trying to get us to follow him like some cult leader, and he's really, really evil. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great ethical teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. A person who said the things Jesus said is either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a chicken, or an evil deceiver. Either this man was and is God, or a madman, or something worse. Those are the only three options. So Luke is saying Jesus is the very glory of God. You can accept this or reject this, but you cannot live in the middle. You cannot say Jesus is one of my many advisors in life. Three-tenths. And this is why Peter is rebuked for putting Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah. To Peter, Jesus was another good third opinion. Jesus was not the authority. And friends, this is what Jesus is constantly trying to teach you and me. You know, I, I, as a pastor, I'm always uh, um, having conversations with people about trying to figure out God's will for their life, and usually they mean career. But if you want to know what God's will is for your life, it's to submit every aspect of your life to him. One-tenth, not three. Because that's where true blessing is found, friends. It's found in the glory of Christ and in that security and love and peace. So that's the first thing Peter does that's wrong. He puts Jesus on the same level with other great prophets and teachers. Now, the second thing that's wrong with Peter's statement is that he wants to prolong their stay on the mountain, right? 
He wants, to, if you, if you uh, watch these ancient movies, of, you know, Romans and Persians fighting, you notice that when they're going to stay for a little while, what are, where are they staying in? They're staying in tents, right? And, and the highest generals have the largest tents, the most luxurious ones. And so Peter wants to prolong this moment of glory. He's like, man, this is awesome, right? <laughs> He's like, let's stay up here, guys. You know, like, let's, I want to get to know you guys. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to be in the inn. And I love this text, this passage, the, this transfiguration. It's something that I've always read, but as I was studying it this past week, I learned so many new things. And one of the things that came out to me was that Peter is constantly trying to thwart Jesus' will of love and selflessness and humility. Did you know that? Constantly. Peter, just, Peter constantly wants to live a life of self-indulgence and glory. You know, later Jesus gets so tired of it. You all know this passage. He rebukes Peter. What does he do? He calls him Satan. <laughs> he says, you do not know the will of God. He says, Satan, get behind me. Uh, must have been really awkward for Peter. <laughs> He's like, I thought you're, I'm your disciple. <laughs> I've never done that before in my ministry. Not yet, at least. <laughs> never called anyone Satan. Get behind me. You don't know the will of God. But that's what Peter is constantly doing. He doesn't want Jesus to go to another town. He wants to stay in this town. They love us here, you know. Let's stay here. Let's remain here. Friends, you and I are just the same. We, we, we desperately want a physical and earthly kind of glory. We want to live comfortable Christian lives. You know, last week I spoke on Jesus' rebuke to the disciples' argument on which one of them was the greatest, right? And what did Jesus say? He said, he who is least among you is the one who is great, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and last Sunday, I talked about how in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is, is, is turning on a switch here. Actually, from 9 to about 20 is leading up to the Passion, Pretty much, Jesus is getting his game face on here. He, he's, getting, he's in the fourth quarter of his life. No more jokes. No more frills. And next week, Peter is going to preach on Jesus' famous words that we all know. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So starting now to, to the end, Jesus has his game face on. I don't know if you've ever played sports, but every time before a game, our coach would come in about 30 minutes before the game, and we're all laughing and joking and doing stupid things in high school, and the coach would come in and say, get your beep face on, game face on. That's what he said. Get your beep game face on. And then he'd walk out, right? Get ready. This brings us to the last point of the conversation. And here is where it gets really interesting. Right? In verse 30, it says, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, right? who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that Greek word for departure, do you know what it is? It's exodus. Ex 
What does that mean? We know that. Out, right? Exit, out. Adas means a way. So exodus means a way out or getting out. In other words, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about what Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross as connected somehow to Israel's exodus out of Egypt, how they got out of Egypt. What's the connection? Well, what was the exodus? It was about getting out of the slavery and oppression and injustice of Pharaoh. That's what the exodus was. But the exodus, as we see here, is something more. Because what is slavery? What is injustice? What is oppression? It's sin. At the core of the slavery that the Israelites experienced is sin. At the core of any kind of oppression and injustice is sin. So the exodus is about God's redemption from sin. And Luke is saying what Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem, what is he saying by saying that they were talking about his departure? They were talking about his exodus. Luke is saying Jesus is going to perform the ultimate exodus, the ultimate freedom, the ultimate deliverance, And if you place your faith in Jesus, just as the Israelites were delivered from Pharaoh, friends, you are delivered from the power of sin and death. But how? How are we delivered from the power of sin? Well, there are two ways Jesus delivers us from sin. First, we're delivered from the objective guilt and objective consequence of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're found guilty of a crime and you stand before a judge, there's going to be justice, right? Justice is going to be served. Justice has got to be served. If you're found guilty, you're going to be sentenced to a judgment or punishment. Another word for this is condemnation. You see, in this sense, you and I were all objectively held accountable to the laws and the punishments of the state. So what does it mean then to be held accountable to the law of God? Well, it means that we're objectively held accountable to his word. In his word, God tells us to love him with all our heart and our mind and our strength, and he tells us to love each other as we love ourselves. That's what he says. Treat others how you would like to be treated. Talk about others how you would like to be talked about. Talk to others how you would like to be talked to. And if we fail, we are found objectively guilty, and therefore we are then under God's justice. In the eyes of God, the ultimate judge, though, through Jesus, as we place our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, what happens? We are objectively free from that guilt. Can you believe that? Like, it's crazy if you think about it, right? So if me and Jen have a fight and I say something that I didn't mean to say out of my emotions and I hurt her, If I place my faith in Jesus, I haven't received Jen's forgiveness yet, but if I place my faith in Jesus, God has objectively taken away my guilt. I subjectively still feel it, but God is saying objectively it's done. It's done. 
But there's another layer to God's deliverance, right? So objectively, we're out of guilt. Objectively, we're out of eternal death. We get resurrection. But there's another layer, and that's what I mentioned before, the, the subjective guilt, the subjective power that we feel. So the second thing that God delivers us from, we're delivered from the subjective power of sin. Now, let me explain this, right? If you're a Christian, you trust in the objective forgiveness of Christ, and subjectively, the Holy Spirit is uh, transforming you from the inside out to a person of love and grace. You see, if you've ever experienced the forgiveness of Christ, uh, before that, maybe you had a really difficult time forgiving people. You didn't think it was possible, man. It was justice all the way. It was vengeance all the way. If someone offended you, you lawyered up. You cut them off. But now you've experienced this powerful love of Christ. And so in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. And by grace, he doesn't condemn you. So now you live out of that grace and power, right? That's the subjective power. That's the subjective freedom that you're experiencing from sin. But even if you are a Christian and you receive the objective freedom and the subjective power of Christ, there's still a tremendous amount of influence that the power of sin subjectively has on you, right? Particular sins just don't, they don't just go away. Uh, we have a tendency to go back to sinful habits. There's a layer where we're still bondage to our sinful nature, so you have to be delivered continually from this, subjectively, right? And a, a, a really good example is, you know, Pharaoh, he objectively lets the Israelites go, they're free, but subjectively, subjectively, he's angry. He wants him back. He's offended. So what does he do? He gets his chariots, he gets his horsemen, he gets his army, and he goes after them. They're free, but he's like, oh, I want you back. And he says, I want to enslave you again. And this happens to all of us. Even long-standing Christians struggle with this subjective power of sin in our hearts. Now let me just lean here a little bit. Let me just lean in here a little bit. How does this really look like? Let me flesh this out for all of us. You see, if you love anything more than God, if there's anything more important to you than God, even though you believe in God, whatever you value in life more than God is actually your king. Right? Subjectively, it's the thing that's ruling you. It's the master in your life. And, and you just can't not do what it wants you to do. Maybe it's overworking. Maybe it's being impatient. Maybe it's getting angry. Maybe it's your pride. And I, I want us to take a, a specific example here that is prevalent in the Bay Area, okay? Um, let's talk about work and career. Let's, 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 let's give this a case study, okay? Wanting to have a stable career is a good thing. But there is a fine line between worshiping Jesus and worshiping work. Here's the fine line. When you worship Jesus, love and integrity and faithfulness and stewardship, right, stewardship drives your work. Success is a result. It's a byproduct, but it's not the goal. No, 
your character, your faith, your relationships, your community, the stewardship of the breath and the gift that God has given you, those are the goals. A job and doing well at it is a result, not the goal. It's a byproduct of your goals, which is your character, your faith. And so in this paradigm, you have a proper biblical hierarchy with spiritual balance. But when you worship work, what happens? Success becomes the primary goal, right? And whatever is left over from your uh, workaholism, your character, your faith, your relationships, whatever leftover is, and there's not much by that time, but whatever leftover is the byproduct of work being your goal. So when you find yourself caring more about work and success than your character and your faith and your community and your relationships, what's happening? That line has been crossed and your old masters are coming back for you. They want to spiritually enslave you again. Think about me. Fear me. Even if you've given your life to Christ. They see an opening. And you, you, maybe you were, you were free for a little while and you were able to rule over your work and career. You had them in check. But they're coming back and they're saying, serve me again. Make me the goal. And so while you are free in one sense, free from the objective guilt of sin in God's cosmic court, which is an amazing thing, in another sense, subjectively, sin comes back and it rattles you. You're constantly fighting them off. And so you need to be continually delivered from them by the power of Christ. The late pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this is actually the condition of every Christian. So you don't have to feel like you're the only one who struggles with this. He said this, you know but you don't know that you've been saved. You know that you should be free what you know with your head that you are blessed beyond measure because you are in Christ Jesus and that the fullest of God's love is yours. You know this in your head. But you don't fully know in your heart. And friends, if you let what people think of you, if you let your excess to be your master, what that means is you are not subjectively what you are objectively. You are not free you're still a slave in your heart you still need to subjectively work out your exodus you know the transfiguration man a glorious passage blew my mind this week blew my mind it's about Jesus' exodus on the cross the ultimate getting out he is the reason why we can be brought out objectively and that we can deal with our layers subjectively over and over again. You know, before I became a Christian, I was, a, I was not a nice person. 
I was very selfish. I was very proud, quick to judge, very competitive, very egotistical because I hadn't experienced a love and, and forgiveness and joy like Jesus's. And I am far from who I want to be. Don't get me wrong. But the more, friends, you are about the glory and grace of Christ, the more you work it into your heart by the power of the Spirit and prayer, friends, you will experience again the layers and layers falling off. You will experience spiritual freedom. The more you will subjectively become what you objectively already are out of sin and death and into life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you and it's almost like we are here at Mount Sinai. But spiritually, we actually are. Because what is the presence of God? What is the temple? What is the body of Christ? It is your people. And we don't have to go to a mountain now. We don't have to go to a temple now. No, we can gather where two or three are gathered. You are there. And Father, we struggle just like Peter. We don't know who you are even though we confess who you are. We don't subjectively know the glory of God. And one day we will finally see it when you come and return uh, to take us home. But even now, Father, we need the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit to give us another exodus. To unleash the bondages, the layers and layers of uh, the power of sin that is subjectively work in our heart. But there is hope because you are the one who can do it. As we place our faith in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can be freed from the subjective power of sin. So Father, help us to wake up. Help us to see you. Help us to get spiritually into it. Help us to get spiritually on the right page. Teach us again what it means to spiritually be a follower of Christ. We beseech you and we ask not with a doubt but with faith knowing that you will deliver when we come before you and ask you and humble ourselves for your help. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.